as we have often made note of on the occasion of coming together, it's a delightful privilege that's ours, given to us by the God of heaven, that life fills our bodies at this time, and we have the precious opportunity to honor him, who in fact is the maker and giver of all good and perfect gifts. And as we have that opportunity to honor him this afternoon, we have already done so by lifting up his name in song, beseeching him in prayer, and even now to open his word and allow it to touch our lives and to instill within us an appreciation for his true awesomeness and the true greatness that in fact he, that, that accompanies him. In fact, as you continue to notice perhaps the screen to, to my left, we have come to that point of continuing our study of a series of lessons that we began several weeks ago now, perhaps by way of, again, a reintroduction to at least some of the highlights, it would never be my wish nor hope that we would lose sight of the fact the Bible is our textbook. As we perhaps discuss an issue or two in science, we never wish to deviate from what is revealed and set forth within the pages of the Word of God. And to that extent, we have come to appreciate that though the Bible per se is not a textbook on science, any time it addresses or even mentions things that are scientifically related, they are absolutely accurate in every respect. In fact, in these opening series of lessons, we have looked first of all at astronomy, and then at biology, and last week at geology. And in every instance, we found that within the pages of the Bible, there were truths in all of those areas that scientists did not come to discover for hundreds, if not thousands of years after, in fact, those things were written. All of that helped us to appreciate that the Scriptures were, in fact, not written thus by men, written by the Holy Spirit, authored by the God of heaven, and in that sense, God stored within it precious nuggets of scientific truth that could help us appreciate the true grandeur of this majestic book. Tonight, as you can perhaps already have seen, we'll look at both oceanography and at meteorology, at least briefly, and notice yet again that our thoughts are lifted to a high plane as we understand truths in those subjects nonetheless revealed thousands of years before scientists ever even knew about them. As we begin that series or that continuing study tonight, May I suggest one of the first things we'll do is attempt to divide the lesson into two pieces. We will look at meteorology first, and we will attempt to define what that identifies and means, and then look at the pages of God's Word. And we will look at four interesting meteorological truths that, again, have certainly only become known to scientists relatively recently. With that thought in mind, let's then turn to some things about meteorology. And might we begin with at least an observation or two? It's a rather long word, admittedly, meteorology, but the idea is one that's very simple, and it's one that you and I often look upon. When we turn on the nightly news and we watch the weather forecaster, quite often he is a person who is endorsed by the American Meteorological Society. They often put that as a way that should give us greater confidence in the forecasts in terms of the weather that we're about to listen to. But as we consider meteorology, notice the very nature of the word, M-E-T-E-O-R-A, meteora. That's merely a prefix. It has reference to atmospheric phenomena. Of course, ology 
is, as you and I have seen with regard to both geology and biology, it is merely a suffix that means study of or discourse related to. And so meteorology is really just a field of discipline in which one gives consideration to atmospheric phenomena, those things that take place in the atmosphere. Is it not true that you and I often have a great interest in those things? What about the weather tomorrow? Should I carry an umbrella or not? Can I cut hay tomorrow if it's a summertime season of the year? We often are interested in what the meteorologist has in fact to say. As one looks at meteorology and considers the forecasts and the other things that relate to it, science has often come to be a rather interested thing as it relates to meteorology. And you and I, of course, as citizens are in fact the same. But our interest is not so much what current meteorology might say. Does God have stored in his word anything that has to do with meteorology? Things that may again be that which can increase and nourish and sustain our faith as we read what appears by some to be a book of myths. But you and I know it's not. This book is God's book. And that which it contains is truth in every regard and in every detail. I have, in fact, chosen four meteorological items out of the sacred text, and I wish us, over the next few moments, to consider these, admittedly somewhat briefly, but as we do so, to be nonetheless encouraged by the things that, that we read. First of all, from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, as we notice in particular, verse number 6 of that chapter, the inspired writer made this observation. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. The word circuits is of especial interest, it would seem to us tonight. As we attach or think about the character of the wind going from south unto north and making its way in its circuits, it really was only in the 18th century when an English meteorologist by the name of George Hadley first propounded and set forth the idea that even our students of meteorology today are asked to learn. It's so-called the Hadley cell model of the Earth's atmosphere in which the given air circulates in well-described patterns and as it completes its circuits, note again the word in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 6, one can see an amazing harmony between what is recognized to be the case in terms of Earth's atmospheric considerations and that which Solomon stated so very, very long ago. In a very simple way, we are aware of some of the basics of what produces those circulatory patterns. As warm air near the equator rises due to the fact it's warmer, it soon begins to move poleward toward either the north or the south pole, and ultimately upon cooling it will descend back to the Earth ultimately completing a circuit. As that circuit is thus completed, we see in many ways a marvelous testimony to what was written long before there were any meteorologists to know anything about that idea. Isn't God's Word truly wonderful and truly fascinating even in regards like this one, the circulation of the Earth's atmosphere? I have in fact in that verse drawn your attention to the usage of the word whirleth about continually. As that phrase appears in the Hebrew, it literally means, you see, 
to surround and surround in a constant fashion. Earth's atmosphere, you see, is a very vibrant and very interesting thing in terms of the continual types of forces that are present. We see that that is in many ways in harmony with what Solomon wrote again so, so many years ago. But that's only one example. Are there some other weather-related things to be found in the Bible? Could I ask you to consider this one as well? It was in that text that Brother Greg read just a moment ago, taken from the book of Job. In Job 28, verse number 25, and a special reference is made to the weight of the wind. That context reminds us it was speaking about the power of God, what He is able to bring about and accomplish and set forth, and in the description of that which is noted, it is He that provides the weight of the wind. Might I ask you to notice, that's just another way of referring to what you and I call air pressure, atmospheric pressure. You may have a barometer somewhere in your house that can read the changing air pressure. You and I today are well aware of what that represents. The movement of various portions of the atmosphere and that which makes warmer or, or I should say higher or lower atmospheric pressure. That's again just the weight of the air, the weight of the wind. How did Job know about this? Millennia before any scientist discovered atmospheric pressure. In fact, as notable as the ancient Babylonians were, they apparently knew nothing about atmospheric pressure. They made no statements of it. The same is true of the Greeks and those like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. It was not really until Torricelli and others in relatively modern times that we now have come to be able to measure and state atmospheric pressure. How did Job know about it? Millennia before there was any scientist on record to have affirmed the very essence of that idea, the weight of the wind. The atmosphere in which you and I live, though we can't see the air per se, at least unless it has smog or some other particulates within it, that air has weight. In fact, it is that column of air that provides the pressure that you and I appreciate, the 14.7 pounds per square inch. And yet Job here made a statement of that idea. Long before, in fact, our Savior was ever even born in the flesh upon this earth, long before many of the events we read about in the Bible. Might I submit to you that's a marvelous testimony to the infinite knowledge of the God of heaven to detail and in fact made note in his word about the weight of the wind. But consider yet another atmospheric phenomenon that is mentioned in the word of God. It's in a text very near to the one we just noted. Twice in the book of Job, reference is made to the marvels of lightning. But it's not just lightning that's mentioned. It is called the way of lightning. And both times the same Hebrew wording is used. The way of the lightning. Perhaps to you and me, it may appear that lightning occurs in an almost random pattern. As such, that lightning strike that takes place, we often make efforts to protect our houses or barns by the use of a lightning rod. Is there a way to the thunder, a way to the lightning? Job, on two occasions, did use that term. I would submit to you this one is an exceedingly recent discovery on the part of scientists. By very careful photographic means and very interesting surveillance, it is now recognized 
that when lightning takes place, it follows a path known as a stepped leader. There is a way to the lightning. Those scientists haven't known that, but for more than a few decades now. Notice what was written in the book of Job well over 3,000 years ago now. A way to the lightning, yes indeed. And the God of heaven made revelation of that very thought through the Holy Spirit to Job long, long ago. And was it not written in that wonderful book of Job in the Old Testament? A little bit later in the book of Job, to interestingly note the occurrence of the second question that relates to that one, you might notice it's found, in fact, in chapter 38, verse 25. By that point in that book, we've reached the point where God is doing the speaking. When Job, in fact, has reached the point of wishing to have a conversation with God and to, in fact, ask Him why He has suffered so. God vindicates perfectly and entirely his position and proceeds to pepper Job with a whole host of questions that help Job see that God is the great one, that God is not to be arbitrarily questioned, that he is not to be accused. And one of those questions were, Job, can you make the way of the lightning? Thus, God knew well aware and was very much cognizant of the fact that there was a way to that lightning. And that was just one of the questions that he asked Job. Job, of course, had no answer. Job didn't know about the way of lightning apart from God's revelation to him of that fact. In fact, again, only recently have scientists come to know it at all. These three, I hope, have heightened our consideration again of the wonders of this book how that it was no man merely that wrote it. It was far advanced scientifically in its time. It was far superior to any work that the human family alone could have possibly produced. In the fourth place, might we notice the snow. It hasn't been very long that we were able to witness the snowfall. We've often, I'm sure, since the days we're young, have noted its beauty the amazing marvel that is the snowfall, and perhaps children often wish for it to come in abundance so that they can dis be dismissed from school. But it's still to be noted, and even scientists have long recognized now, especially since the microscope was invented, that the snow is an incredibly complex and beautiful thing. Those snowflakes don't last long when you try to hold it in your hand and look at it. But if you can quickly bring it to a cold region and thus study it, look at it carefully and note the intricacy of the science structures that are formed, it is absolutely amazing. And yet isn't it interesting that in the book of Job yet again, we find God asking the question, Job, have you seen the treasures of the snow? Treasures of the snow? Those raindrops as they fall seem to take on a somewhat spherical shape more or less. But there seems to be something different about the snow. And God noted it many, many millennia ago. The treasures of the snow. We are now told that all of those snowflakes that form are in fact unique. There's not a one of them that's absolutely on the molecular level identical to any other one. Isn't that fascinating? That every snowflake is unique. Could that be what God had in mind as he made note of the treasures to be found in the snow? There are still things about the crystallization process that have enamored chemists for years. 
Can we not see that what God had uttered concerning the treasures of the snow is still a beautiful and marvelous phenomenon to contemplate? These are but four matters, meteorologically speaking, that can be found in the Word of God. Everything from the way of the lightning to the circulation of the air to the snowfall itself. All as they are mentioned and identified, nonetheless with nuggets of marvelous truth found related to them that challenge scientists until this day about the orderliness of this universe and of this planet on which we live. To see these things about the notion of meteorology reminds us, doesn't it, of the foreknowledge one more time we have seen in the Bible. Things written long before science discovered them, but what science has discovered are in harmony with them. Could I ask you over the latter part of our lesson time tonight to turn your attention to the oceans? What about oceanography? Some of the matters concerning that interesting discipline for study. Oceanography. That again is a rather notable part of our planet. We are called those who live on the blue planet. And when we see those pictures of the planet, the most startling and striking feature of it is the fact that the oceans give it that beautiful blue tint. We know that there's no other planet in our, our, in our solar system that has that characteristic. And as far as scientists have discovered, there's not any other orbiting body anywhere in the universe that yet is anywhere close to this earth on which we live. Might I submit we should give some passing thought to oceanography and ask, what does God's Word say about it? Are there nuggets of truth concerning it that again scientists in recent times have learned and have discovered? I would ask you to notice the realm of study. The name is rather self-explanatory, isn't it? Oceanography, a study of the oceans. The oceans, in fact, cover roughly 71% of the surface of this planet. That's not far from three-quarters. Thus, as one considers the marvelous impact and the significant influence that the oceans exert over Earth as a whole, everything from its weather to the other features of its surface, the oceans play a tremendous role in the ongoing nature of our planet. I've listed a few thoughts for your consideration in terms of the value of the oceans. Many of the, of the minerals which you and I recognize to be vital for life, in fact, are extracted from the waters of the ocean. That alone is a beautiful thing to consider, the marvelous wonder of that which is actually within the waters of the ocean itself, not just the various kinds of life that are there, minerals such as gold and magnesium that are needful for life and for other things that are valuable to society, they're all extracted out of the ocean in one form or another. But that's but a mere matter of what's about to come. Interestingly, oceanography is a relatively recent science. It's true that there were explorers such as Columbus and others who, in fact, were born aloft by the waters and who went to discover new lands, but they really didn't study the ocean per se. It's not until relatively recent eras that the study of the oceans has taken on a beautiful and powerful science of its own. The first of the things I'd wish you to consider with me is what does the ocean floor look like? 
it really was until only recent times that it was thought that it really beneath the surface of the ocean that the water in fact was not that deep and in fact what was on the bottom was basically flat if one by some means could take away the water and look it would just be a nice rolling plane at most obviously in days gone by men didn't have an opportunity to discover firsthand what was on the ocean floor one couldn't go there and look at it in recent times various vessels have been constructed and men can now send vessels down there and look at it or study it by other scientific means it is nothing like what men so often thought it was one discovers there are mountains on the ocean floor and there are great valleys, and in fact, some of them are extraordinarily deep, miles deep, in fact. These trenches that exist, these mountains that are there, are in fact larger than any mountains on the surface. Man was greatly mistaken, wasn't he, in presuming it was just a nice flat ocean bottom. What did the Bible have to say about the ocean floor? I would ask you to look at three passages with me in passing. As we ask, what does God's Word say that appeared on the floor of the ocean? And might we notice, of course, no man could possibly have known of his own accord. But this is what God had to say about it. In 2 Samuel twenty-two sixteen, long early in the days of the Old Testament, we notice the sweet singer of Israel, the psalmist David, made a reference on that occasion to the channels of the sea. And the Hebrew word means ravines. Apparently indicative of large chasms and valleys that existed on the ocean floor. That very text also is quoted later in the Psalms. Could I call your attention, if I might, to the 135th Psalm, verse 6. The very last word in that verse makes reference again to the fact that the ocean floor isn't just flat. It existed and has large structures that are apparent upon it. Perhaps one final observation would be the one found in Jonah 2 verse 6. We well recall that enthralling story of Jonah in which this prophet who was reluctant to go to Nineveh as God had commanded, we remember that a great fish swallowed him and for three days and three nights there he was. From the very belly of that great fish, Jonah 2 verse 6 says that he prayed on that occasion. But notice where it says that he had been while in the belly of that great fish. He had been at the base of the mountains. Mountains in the ocean? God's Word said that there was. It would be millennia later before scientists would discover that there were mountains on the, in the oceans. That idea alone again gives us great confidence and marvelous certainty that God was the author of this book. No scientist or scholar, regardless of the brightness that may have been his or hers, wrote this book. God wrote it. As one considers the mountains and the other things on the ocean floor, could I ask you to note something else about the oceans? Not just the topography of the ocean floor but also the currents that exist in the ocean as well. Just as surely as there are currents in the atmosphere that we recognize as wind and the other matters concerning it, there are currents in the ocean, ocean currents. Some of the most well-known ones, in fact, are just off the shore of the United States of America. Those ocean currents are now well cataloged by scientists. In fact, ships sail by them. 
one doesn't want to, in fact, try to sail in a way against the current. It takes you far too long and uses much too much fuel. One desires to sail with the current so that you can arrive quickly at the destination. As these ocean currents are now well recognized, might we ask, what does God's Word have to say about currents in the oceans? In Psalm 8, verse number 8, again it was David, the psalmist, who in that wonderful psalm that extols and praises the God of heaven, beginning in verse 3, he utters these words, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast made, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? The psalmist understood the humility that should be descriptive of the human family. For God in all his greatness and grandeur has fashioned this planet in marvelous wonder. And as he continues that praise of God in verse number 8, he makes a direct reference to the paths of the sea. The paths of the sea. In fact, I verbatim put that on the screen or on the wall for your consideration because the preeminent oceanographer of our day was a student of the Bible. And when Matthew Mur Fontaine Murray read that text, he made it his life's goal to discover what God meant when he made reference to the paths of the sea. He, in fact, gave his life to that discovery, and today oceanographers still make reference to the study that he made and the books that he wrote cataloging the paths of the sea. Isn't it truly a breathtaking thought that here was an individual who took God's Word as it was presented and used it to prompt investigations in science, and he did so and discovered much that has been of benefit to the human family ever since that time. As oceanography could well be stated in that fashion, might I ask you to consider a third element in the oceanographic study. It has to do with the springs of the sea. I, make, I ask you to make note that there are actual freshwater springs. Scientists have found them. They know of many occurrences of them now. Springs that are available on perhaps the floor of the ocean in which fresh water can be found the springs of the sea. When you and I ask, would it not be incredible if God's Word said something about the springs in the sea and made note of the fact that long ago there was reference in the Word of God itself to the existence of springs that exist like that? And yet when we come to Job 38 verse 16, that's again one of those questions that God asked of Job. Asking on that occasion when God did to Job, he asked him about the springs of the sea. Had he entered into them and was he aware of them? Of course, apart from God's revelation, Job knew nothing of them. And today, it is still amazing that scientists are discovering only again the existence of these freshwater springs when God had made reference to them millennia ago in the Word of, in the, word of the Lord. To consider all of these matters, I would hope, would serve to increase our confidence and our faith in the truthfulness of this book. And when we read those passages, to perhaps consider in them are wonders that science will yet learn in my lifetime and yours that God has revealed all along. The fourth and final consideration that has to do with oceanography has to do with a cycle that I've called the hydrologic cycle. 
it would in many ways seem to me this one is as marvelous as the others that we have studied. We are aware today that water is truly a tremendous thing for, for livelihood. The human body has to have it. Life has to have water. We appreciate the needfulness of the rain. And when a drought comes or a dry spell, we pray earnestly for God to provide us that continuing rainfall that is so necessary. There are parts of the world overcome with drought, parts of our own country that are suffering beneath it. But perhaps a good question would be, how is the water, where does it come from? Why doesn't the cloud finally dry up and there be no more rain? It seems there's obviously a replenishing of the water in the atmosphere somehow. How does it take place? If God's Word were to say something about that, would it not be truly a marvel indeed? Scientists have now, at least in the recent 250 years or so, come to know a great deal about the hydrologic cycle. How that the rain falls from the atmosphere as it soaks into the soil or it runs off in the streams and rivers to the oceans. Evaporation takes place and that replenishes the water in the atmosphere and thus provides the clouds and the cycle is repeated all over again. That again is a relatively recent understanding of the human family and its scientific studies. I have a few passages I would wish you to consider with me and see if God didn't reveal the basic ideas of the hydrologic cycle years and years before science ever discovered it. Could we begin in Job 38, verses 25 through 28? Job chapter 38, verses 25 through 28. We've already referenced a few of the truths out of that chapter, but listen to this presentation of the same idea. Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven? When the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together, wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion or feel the appetite of the young lions? When they couch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? I make reference to that thought because notice the bottles of heaven are referenced, which takes us back earlier in the chapter beginning in verse 25. Who hath divided a watercourse for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder, to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth? Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Out of whose womb came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven, who hath gendered it? There was an observation and a reference there, wasn't there, to the fact, does the rain have a father? What genders it? Something, some process is responsible for its presentation. Perhaps with that thought in mind, we can turn our attention to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. On that occasion, again, Solomon, the inspired writer, asked this rather haunting question. All the rivers run into the sea. Yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. 
the implication of a cyclic character where the rivers have come from and where they flow into the sea, yet the sea isn't full. Some process removing the moisture, the water from the sea. We can only ask, what's the missing piece? That moisture that is removed from the sea somehow gets back to where it started. There's only one element missing. It's the evaporative part. But might I note that it seems to be the very thing mentioned in Jeremiah 10, verse number 13. Let us notice the statement of that first few chapters in Jeremiah. Verse number 13 of Jeremiah chapter 10. Listen to this statement of the hydrologic cycle there. Jeremiah 10, verse 13. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. There we see the closing piece to the puzzle. The ascension of the vapors from, in fact, the ends of the earth, those distant places in the oceans. We have, might I submit, every major part of the, meteor, of the hydrologic cycle set forth in the Word of God. Isn't it a true testimony to the foreknowledge of the Bible, an encouraging aspect of the scientific truths that are found therein? It is truly an amazing thing to notice that even in oceanography, there is considerable foreknowledge of the truths of that scientific discipline. I have only selected four elements out of each of the areas of study tonight. Oceanography on the one hand, meteorology on the other, there are others that no doubt each of us might have noticed in passing. Perhaps we can make note of them and share them with others when we have opportunity to help them see that the scientific truths in this book predate by far the discoveries when science first discovered them on its own. Oceanography, geology, astronomy, meteorology, all of them, as the references are made, they help us see God's Word still stands as the anvil of truth that it always has. As we draw near the close of our lesson this evening, would it not be fair to make just a few concluding remarks? I would hope our statement of the sciences in the Bible has been a captivating observation, has encouraged us to note the beauty and power of the Word of God. Tonight, in particular, meteorology has consumed us for the first part of the lesson, and we noticed four truths, everything from the circulation of the air to the other matters concerning the way of the lightning, the air pressure itself, all of them reminding us the truthfulness of God's Word. And then in oceanography, we saw everything from the circulation of the ocean currents to the very nature of what's on the ocean floor. God's Word had revealed it all along. This very night, might we ask this rather penetrating question. If these physical things, such as the ocean floor and the circulation of the atmosphere, if God's Word was right about those things, should we suspect that it's also right when it discusses spiritual things? We can't see hell, but God's Word says there is one. We can't see heaven, but God's Word says there is one. We may not be able to physically see sins cleansed, but he says baptism will do it. Might I submit we ought to have even greater confidence now when those declarations are made because science has affirmed all of the physical things that God's Word has said are exactly true. 
tonight if you're not a Christian, but you know that you've reached the point in life that Christ died for you, you know that you are lost in your current state, friend, don't wait any longer. Every moment that waits is a moment that you're in jeopardy of an eternal hell. Every moment that you, that you procrastinate is one more moment when the powerful truth of Proverbs 27.1 should haunt you. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Tomorrow may never be yours. Tonight may never be yours. Today is the day of salvation, to quote Hebrews 3. And so with today being the day of salvation, these scientific truths, I hope, have motivated us and given us an incentive to appreciate that every declaration of the Word of God is absolutely true. Isn't that what the psalmist declared so long ago in Psalm 119, verse 128? I esteem all thy precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. If you hate every false way, and if you'd like to become a member of the blood-bought body of Christ, there's only one way into it. The elders here at Pippin cannot force you to join. I cannot do anything. It's only by virtue of what the Word of God says. Jesus can add you. That's the only way in. And He'll add you when you have responded in obedient faith to that which the Lord declares as prerequisites to Him admitting you. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His glorious name as the only begotten Son of God. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. And upon that accomplishment, when done in faith and in accordance to the scriptural narrative, the Lord adds you to the church. We'd be honored at Pippin to welcome you in fellowship. If we could assist you tonight in that accomplishment, what a joyous day for us and for you it would be. If you, though, have become a member of the body, but you have not been true and faithful and loving to that calling, we have been called, Ephesians 4 verse 1, to a noble vocation. Have you slipped aside? Have you wandered astray? If you have done that in a public way so that others know about that aspect of your life, come back to that first love. We'd be honored to pray on your behalf. God has promised upon your repentance and confession to forgive those things. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways tonight, would you not in haste let us know so that we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing?